You're listening to the Mission Bitcoin Podcast. Welcome to the Mission Bitcoin Podcast, where each week we explore Christian responsibility in adopting Bitcoin. I'm Matt Solik, your host, and we're glad to have you with us today. Now, typically on the show, we like to talk about the fundamentals of Bitcoin, what it is and why it matters, and help you become acquainted with some of the people, organizations, and Bible teaching churches using Bitcoin to introduce Jesus to people and make the world a better place. Well, today we want to take a break from some of the fundamentals and talk a little bit more about the technicals. And to help us do that, we have Dr. Jeff Ross with us again. Now, Jeff is the founder of Valshire Capital Management and was on the show back in October. Today, we check in with him again for an outlook on some of the recent price action of Bitcoin and some of the potential factors influencing the outlook for the rest of the year. So without further ado, let's jump into today's conversation with Dr. Jeff Ross. Hey, Jeff, thanks so much for joining us today. It's great to have you back and really kind of interested to get your thoughts on what was has been was an interesting year. And I think we have uh, an interesting year ahead of us with everything that's going on, just macro uh, and geopolitically, macroeconomic and geopolitically. But uh, I guess from again, from one physician to another, have you missed uh, have you missed medicine? Oh, man. Uh with, without uh, wanting to offend any physicians who may be listening, I, I don't miss it one bit. Yeah. I mean, I, I I love certain parts of it, um, but man, uh, that whole that feeling of feeling like a cog in this system and not being able to do anything about it, uh, it, it just nagged at me and nagged at me. And so I, I had I've been very much enjoying not working as a doctor. I, I almost hate to admit it. Yeah, no. Well, I don't hate to admit it. <laughs> the, the farther and farther you get out from it, the less and less you hate to admit it. Uh, right. but it's true. I mean, it's uh, sometimes one of the greatest fears, especially for physicians, is leaving something that you know and taking a risk on something, even if there's a, a cut in pay. But man, I, I think the change in lifestyle is just, you, you just, it, it's, you just can't, uh, there's no words to describe it. Exactly. That's, I just, just to piggyback on that real quick, it's hard to express how much my quality of life has improved, even with the huge uh, pay cut that I've taken. So the, the income streams are much lower, but my quality of life is just, you know, exponentially higher than it was before. Yeah. Not worrying about getting called in the middle of the night and, oh yeah. Well, great. That's fantastic. Um, Jeff, let's, uh, Let's kind of talk about the elephant in the room, which is Bitcoin's price action. So, um, what is? I think the last time we talked in the fall, we were we were pretty optimistic about you know what was going to happen with Bitcoin's price, and you know I think for most of us who were diehard Bitcoiners, we don't we're not really concerned about the price action, but obviously you know we're not naive of what's going on. But what what uh, give us kind of a recap of what what happened last year with Bitcoin? Sure. So I guess the short answer is that Bitcoin basically traded sideways, up and down, up and down. And, and there are kind of two major moves higher and followed by two major moves lower. Um, so we so early so in the kind of the winter, uh, we, we went higher up until about May. Then came the China news where they banned uh, Bitcoin miners and Elon came out uh, with a tweet storm that kind of took the, the world by surprise and Bitcoin fell hard. <clears throat> and then it fell hard into the summer, basically into July 
uh, testing about 29,000 ish or so, uh, then ramp back up and people thought, okay, it's all good. Including me. I thought, okay, we, we got through the worst of it. it. You know, the miners are officially completely out of China. That's actually fantastic news in the long run. Uh, they moved mostly to North America. The U S was the biggest beneficiary of the minor exodus from China. So that's all great news because that used to be some of the FUD, the fear, uncertainty, doubt about Bitcoin was that most of the miners were located in China. So that problem is behind us now. That's no more FUD. Things were looking good. And then uh, we got, we rose up to, I want to say about 67,000 uh, in November, early November, about November 10th. It looks like that was the um, the high. Um, and then, and then it, that's when it peaked. And then it's been a slow, painful decline since then. Uh, and so that affected, uh, you know, everything I, I, at that point, I was still very bullish and positioned bullishly within my hedge fund. So I was very long miners, very long Bitcoin, Bitcoin related kind of entities. And so I feel the pain with everybody else who's been kind of, uh, you know, hodling through this or accumulating through this. It's just been grinding lower and lower and lower. And it's been it's been a painful ending. And, and now January is not looking much better uh, to start. So so that's that's the recap of the year. It was a sideways, painful slog. OK, so I guess the, the obvious question is, why did we miss this? So here's what I think. It, um, you know, I, I come from a macro point of view. And so I'll sort of dive a little bit into that. Um, what happened is, let's see, where, where do I start? First of all, markets look look ahead and they tend to pull forward what's coming and, and then the markets respond to what's next. So what I was looking at in October and November was we uh, I, I looked at it as, as about a 50-50 chance of either having a little bit of GDP uh, acceleration year over year or uh, you know, a 50% chance that it's actually going to decelerate a little bit. That doesn't sound like much of an issue, but when you couple that with decelerating inflation, which I think we peaked in inflation in Q4, clearly. So we're high right now, inflation. Everybody's talking about inflation. I think we've peaked and we're going to start decelerating from here. Uh, and that has huge investment implications. And why I bring that up is because Bitcoin is extremely sensitive to two things, decelerating inflation and decelerating GDP when we look at kind of a year-over-year -year comp basis. What happened? So, oh, sorry, go mm -hmm. ahead. Well, the inflation aspect, do you think that's um, because the, the Fed slowed down quantitative easing, printing, and or the, I guess it was just announced yesterday or actually a couple of weeks ago as well, that the Fed intends to raise interest rates, or is it kind of both? I, I think the Fed has less to do with it than more people think. I actually think that the markets move the Fed more than the Fed moves the markets. We can get short-term jolts like we had yesterday in the markets. If the Fed makes a policy error, which I believe they just did yesterday, mm. uh, a significant one uh, uh, akin to what they did uh, right around October of 2018, and it led to a huge several month market drawdown before they reversed course. I think it was on Christmas Eve of 2018. I don't know if you remember that, but that was I think I do. That's, that's when Trump was put, uh, Powell made a, he wanted to raise interest rates and Trump said, what are you doing? Powell basically doubled down on his hawkishness saying we yeah. are going to raise and it's on autopilot. And that just totally spooked the markets and caused this panic. And so anyways, I think he just did the equivalent move yesterday by saying they want to double down. They want to tighten even faster and raise rates even faster to quote get inflation under control my take on it is they see the same data i look at and they see trouble ahead and they want to so they're talking about doing this out of strength 
they're doing this because they see what's coming and they see that badness is coming and they want to have some tools left in their toolkit in order to be able to do some quantitative easing again and uh, lowering interest rates again. Okay. Uh, okay. And, and you see that data and I don't, so that's why you're on the show. Uh, so what trouble are you seeing ahead? For, forget, forget, the, forget the Fed right now. What, what trouble are you seeing ahead? Sure. So from a macroeconomic perspective, when you get year-over-year deceleration, we'll come back to this, deceleration in the economy, so in real economic growth and in inflation, risk-on assets don't like that. They hate it. In fact, the last time that happened was uh, March of 2020. So right around when the COVID news hit, the market was primed to crash. And all it needs is a catalyst to crash when you get those situations. So we're coming up to that same situation. We have it mildly here in Q1 of 2022, and it's going to go deeper into that in Q2 of 2022. So I, I think right now the market outlook is cautious for the very short term, like weeks to months for the next quarter, it gets just flat out um, bearish. Uh, so, so that's when you want to get defensive. That's when you don't want to hold, quote, risk on assets. You want to hold risk off assets. The risk off assets generally include cash. So US, the US dollar, US treasuries tend to be a good safe haven. Gold uh, historically has been a good safe haven. Bitcoin will be a safe haven asset someday, but it's not yet. Right now, yeah. it's still too speculative and risk on for most people. Okay. So the 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 macro environment basically we're, we're we're heading into recession is that what you're saying yeah yeah a recession has you know they have their definition you have to have two consecutive quarters of of uh decelerating not 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 even decelerating but you have to have negative gdp growth um for two quarters so i don't know that we hit two quarters of it um but yeah so recessionary like conditions whether or not it's it, it meets its official definition and uh, Biden probably doesn't have the political um, gravitas to push back on Powell's decision. Is that a fair statement? That that is fair. Um, yeah. Yes. I mean, he's no Trump, right? Trump That's clearly right, yeah. was trying to move the markets, and Biden tries to keep uh, remain aloof from it, at least publicly. Well, and I think also from a from a approval rating perspective, really the only thing he's doing well on is the a covid response and if he's mucking around with the economy he'd probably tank even further on those numbers so that that may be why he's being cautious and not doing a trump trump thing um and that's just that's just speculation i mean that's that's my opinion um well so you think powell got it wrong yes so I think he's doubling down at the wrong time, which is surprising to me because he made a huge error back in 2018, and now he literally did the exact same thing. So he sees it coming. He's trying to quickly reverse things so that he has weapons to use during the next huge market pullback. Um, but because you know he's basically triggering, he's, he's creating his own uh, destiny by doing what he's saying. So he's basically triggering a market collapse earlier than it would have been uh, in order to have tools to fix it, fix it, quote, unquote, uh, on the other side. Well, but if I'm, 
Go ahead. Go ahead, Jeff. Well, I'm just saying, but he, he is actually a slave to the markets, not the other way around. He, yeah. they, they can make these policy errors that, that sort of hasten the demise of what's, of what's coming. Um, but he doesn't fix it. The, the market moves based on the underlying data. Course, uh, yeah. and, and then that's what moves, uh, the fed. So anyways, uh, we're kind of getting esoteric here, but going all the way back, why did, why did we not see that parabolic ramp up in Bitcoin going into the fourth quarter? Like I expected, um, because the data turned bearish underlying and the market sees that coming things like rate sensitivity, interest rates, those kind of things. The bond market is very intelligent. Stock market tends to be less intelligent, uh, than the bond market than, mm-hmm. than the treasury market. They have seen this coming since early November, uh, and Bitcoin is very sensitive to that as well because it's the freest market out there. And so I think uh, we may actually see – I posted a chart that could be sort of uh, short-term bullish recently, uh, a technical chart, because we're basically testing uh, a boundary and, and our um, – Momentum indicators are very oversold right now, but they can keep getting more and more oversold. Mm-hmm. So I think we see a short-term bounce higher. I would use that for, to tell people, if you're into trading at all for Bitcoin and risk on assets, I would use that as an opportunity to consider getting even more defensive, maybe taking profits at that point. Um, I'm a huge believer in holding Bitcoin for the long-term. Personally, I don't ever sell my Bitcoin. I plan on holding it forever, and I see this as a great long-term buying opportunity. But in my hedge fund, it's totally different. I try, sure. to, I try to hedge against these sort of things. So, of course. Yeah. Yep. Um, well, it's interesting also. I think that you know, looking in the stuff that I've read about 2019 and leading up to the crash of 20 uh, March of 2020, it it seems like the Fed was already um, trying to intervene in the market. They had uh, printed a bunch of money and were starting to push that out to banks in the fall of 2019, and the the pandemic became a, a um, convenient excuse for the market to crash the way it did. Um, so it seems like we're pretty much we've pretty much have kicked the ball down the road two years. Mm-hmm. Yep. And they, you know, this is, this is the way they roll. I mean, this is always what happens and they, they tend to have kind of, they have a reactionary response and then that causes sort of delayed consequences. So here's what I think is going to happen going forward. They are going to, uh, completely taper. You know, we, they've been supporting the market with these, uh, mortgage backed security purchases and treasury purchases. They're going to totally get, uh, stop doing that. So they're not going to provide that, that easing anymore. Um, then they're going to try to raise rates very quickly starting in March. That's the timeline. They say they want to get three or four rate raises in. I think the market will absolutely flip out. It's going to be a, another taper tantrum. Uh, if you remember that term, um, and, and they're going to, quickly reverse course. So they're going to maybe raise rates once, maybe twice, maybe even three times. Market's going to hate it. Tank. Everybody's going to be panicking. Biden's going to start putting pressure on them because uh, midterm elections are coming up. Mm-hmm. They're going to reverse course and then the market will spring spring back. That's what I think happens. Uh, and that's kind of the timeline I'm watching. So second quarter, we're going to see lots of fireworks. I think, obviously, I'm just guessing, uh, but this is kind of what the data is pointing to at the moment. Okay. And I guess politically, <clears throat> in March of 2020, we could justify, you know, the quantitative easing and the and the printing. But I guess this time it's going to be a lot hard, politi- lot harder politically to justify. They're going to do it, but it's going to be a lot harder politically. I mean, is that a fair assessment? It is for now, but you know. Um 
catalysts, news events have a way of showing up at the right time. And so I would not be at all surprised if, say, um, another horrible COVID variant came around right around that time or something like that, or some maybe war with China became suddenly a serious issue, some sort of political issue where he could latch onto that and say, mm-hmm. look, for the sake of America, we need to you know, do more quantitative. E-. So first of all, they're going to do quantitative easing until the dollar dies for sure. That's that's yeah. what I believe. They're stuck in this. They've painted themselves into the corner. Um and and so they're just going to keep using whatever uh, whatever news event of the day uh, is relevant uh, to, to to as an excuse to continue doing the easing. So um, that's what I think happens. And then all of this, the good news, the the silver lining to the dark clouds is I see a, a very bearish first half of 2022 leading to a much more bullish second half of 2022. Okay. Well, and so in your, I, I want to ask about the recent activity in Kazakhstan because I think they had a lot of Bitcoin mining going on. But um, what, uh, how much lower do you think Bitcoin? And I know this is your crystal ball, but how much lower do you think Bitcoin would go? Yeah. So, um, well, it can it can go lower and it can be disturbingly lower. And I guess the the bottom range that I look at right now is back down to as low as, and I hate to even say this, but I could see twenty five thousand, twenty six to thirty thousand, somewhere in that range. Um, I think there's a lot of very good support and, and people just flat out won't be sellers at, at those prices. Um, so we'll see. I hope it doesn't go that low. It certainly might though. And from a buying, from a long-term buyer perspective, that would be fantastic, obviously. Yeah, for sure. Do Okay. Before I forget, let's just um, ask about Kazakhstan and mining. Um, I don't know how much hash rate they have, but I think there there was mining going on in Kazakhstan. I mean, is that uh, has that been reflected in the price here, or do we see, view that as a long term risk? Uh, not really, not as long term. I I like to see the um, hash rate be spread out. Uh, as much as possible around the world. I want it to be as decentralized as possible, just like you want node operators to be as decentralized as possible. So I don't see that as a a real risk. I think there's going to be countries, uh, you know, all throughout the history of Bitcoin where they are, you know, pro- pro-America, anti-America, and every, and everybody in between, you know, and pro-freedom, anti-freedom. Bitcoin is just a tool. So uh, whoever wants to use it, it, um, can and should use it. It, it, it makes, uh, it, it works well between frenemies. So you can, you can hate each other and Bitcoin still works. And that's what makes it so great. It's a trustless system. So, um, I think every country should be using it, whether, you know, wherever you fall in the political spectrum. Okay, great. And Jeff, kind of looking ahead, I, you've kind of already painted a picture of, you know, the macroeconomics and, um, what is your opinion of, you know, the Bitcoin cycle, the parabolic moves, do you think we're in the quote unquote Dan held super cycle? Do you think we're, we're going to see the blow off tops or do you think we're going to see more of a rounded top and less, less pullback? So I've been watching it and I, and I, I keep telling people I've been uh, reserving the right to change my mind as the facts change. So by that, I mean, uh, I, I was assuming that we would see a parabolic move, which we obviously didn't get because of the macroeconomic indicators I talked about before. I thought if it didn't happen, there's a chance it could the uh, cycle could be extended into Q1, so this quarter of 2022. Um, based on what I look at, again, from the macroeconomic perspectives, I would be very surprised if we had a rip higher, a parabolic move higher from here for the next several months. Um, I, like I said, I'm mostly bearish, actually, on risk on assets uh, like Bitcoin. And um, so 
are we in Dan held super cycle? First of all, I think a lot of people get confused by that term. The way I look at it now is now that Bitcoin is approximately a trillion dollar asset. I think it starts to trade like a major asset class, meaning that it, it moves on the whims, the direction of the economy and inflation. Again, macroeconomic indicators that I look at. So I think there's all kind of predictable movements based on what the cyclicality of the business cycle and the inflation cycle as well. And I think Bitcoin just becomes another major asset class that does that as well. Now, much better asset class over time. I still think um, like the, the IRR, the internal rate of return of Bitcoin is going to be much higher uh, than most other asset classes for this decade. I'm targeting about an 80% CAGR uh, for at least for the first five years of this decade, maybe longer. Um, that's really good. You don't expect an 80% return year over year on stocks or bonds or commodities or anything else, uh, even though they can have little spurts of that. So that's how I look at Bitcoin. I think I think we're getting out of that four-year cycle that I thought I think um, was directly related to Bitcoin miners needing to sell at certain times mm, for their mm-hmm. capital expenditures. They no longer need to do that because they've tapped the public markets. They can borrow money and they can just simply hold their Bitcoin. And they've basically all the major miners have committed to holding Bitcoin on their balance sheet and not selling it. Um, so that that is good for the long-term price movements of Bitcoin. It's better for volatility. Um, It'll like every asset class, it will still show cyclicality. We'll still have rises and falls, but I don't think we're going to get the huge moves higher and the huge moves lower uh, like we have in the past. And I guess institutional buying also provides some discipline. I mean, they're they're it's a lot more mature and regimented. I guess um, the way they buy and sell. Um, and- uh, well. If I can add, sort of. So, so yes, institutional buyers have come in, but so far it's been the traders. So the huge hedge funds that are trading funds like uh, Jim Simons, his uh, Renaissance uh, fund and similar funds, they're massive accounts that trade Bitcoin. So we still don't have a lot of the other, the ones that we want are the institutional investors like pension funds. We want long only funds to get into Bitcoin. We want a pension fund to be like, I'm going to put a 2% allocation into Bitcoin and I'm going to not touch it for, for 10 years. Okay. Those are the guys we wanted and they're not in yet, but they're, they're coming. Okay. So we, we need the Michael Saylors of institutions to come in. Exactly. Not the traders. Got it. Got it. Okay. Um, but I, I, I think that the, if we look at the growth of Bitcoin, the top side's still infinity. I mean, we still have bonds to take, you know, I probably, and again, I'm not a professional investor. I'm not an economist, just, you know, just my own education, but it seems to me that the bonds would be the first asset class that are going to kind of go away. Yes. So that's what needs to happen. So what needs to happen is institutions, and they're having these discussions right now, they're sitting around their tables or having their Zoom calls and they're saying, what do we do about bonds? What do we do about the fact that interest rates are so low and these are basically return-free risk? That's mm-hmm. a Jim Grant sta- uh, statement that's really caught on. So we, we have, you know, we have allocations anywhere from twenty to sixty percent in bonds. Some have higher even. 
And they're basically saying we're locking in no gains or losses after inflation for the next decade. We need to put some of this in Bitcoin. And so they're having these discussions right now. The trick is how slow or fast each one moves uh, and when when we'll see changes take place. So so bonds are they're, so Bitcoin is definitely coming for bonds. I think it's coming for kind of gold first uh, and then bonds. I actually think the more important story that people don't talk about is I just think of Bitcoin as better money for the world. It's freely available, uh, freely choosable money, and it's better in basically every way than, than fiat because it's the antithesis of fiat currency. So first it's coming for fiat. And I think we're going to see one by one fiat currencies fall and the citizens of those countries, like Turkey is a good example, mm-hmm. South America and Africa, some countries who are experienced high levels of inflation, borderline hyperinflation, they're going to one by one transfer from their cruddy currency into Bitcoin. And we're, so the weaker currencies are going to fall first. Uh, and I think at the end of this decade, we may be left with just you know the US dollar and maybe a, a small handful of other uh, government fiat currencies. But that's kind so, of my optimistic outlook for government fiat. So you don't, you don't think that the jump would go from uh, cruddy local currency to dollar? You think they would make the jump straight like El Salvador? El Salvador was already on the dollar, but you don't think they're going to transition from cruddy fiat uh, Banana Republic fiat to U.S. dollar fiat and then to Bitcoin, or you think they'll make the, the straight jump? They might. It depends on each government, right? And it depends, like, are they pro-American, anti-American? You know, or do they have a little rebelliousness in them? You got, you know, look at uh, Bukele of of El Salvador. He he's basically given the finger to the U.S. government. Yeah, and and that's risky, right? I would mm-hmm. be very nervous if I were him mm-hmm. because, like, the U.S. government is not someone you mess with, and the U.S. Mm-hmm. military is not someone you mess with, and so. Um, it depends. If they're very pro-American, they may just switch to the U.S. dollar. If they're a little more rebellious, then they'll probably kind of move over to a Bitcoin standard sooner than later. So we'll see. Okay. I, th- I think I think uh, we will be um, pleasantly surprised as Bitcoiners by the end of this year. I'm assuming at least one more country, if not more, declares Bitcoin as legal tender, uh, like El Salvador did. Okay. I mean, do you have any tea leaves? Do you, do you have any idea what country it might be at this point? No, I really don't. I just know that lots of countries are discussing it currently, mostly in Central and South America. Some African nations are as well. Um, so, so remains to be seen. I don't have any inside information, though. Okay. Very interesting. Um, Matt, uh, do you, uh, listening to the conversation, I know you're, you're really into the, um, this sort of data. Do you have any questions for Jeff? So obviously, uh, we've been waiting for SEC approval of a spot ETF that actually draws up. But you know, the the idea is like maybe this brings in mass institutional adoption and more retail adoption of of this. How do you see that fitting into the big picture of all of this? And do you see that happening this year? So that would definitely be a positive catalyst. I have been um, disappointed with how much Gary Gensler has been digging his heels in on this issue, and he's. I think holding uh, the Bitcoin spot ETF hostage mm-hmm. to all of his demands to make crypto exchanges more um, mm-hmm. uh, more sound. And they have a long ways to go. And it's very tough to force your will upon this 
you know, they call it the Wild West uh, right now, and it basically is. And so they're trying to impose their regulations on worldwide crypto exchanges. That's really, really tough to do. And 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 the problem is, and I, I wouldn't normally care, but they're they're literally holding this Bitcoin spot ETF hostage based on those kind of things. And to me, that's extremely disappointing. What I hope he would do is, and he he clearly understands the difference between Bitcoin and the rest of the altcoin world. What I wish he would do is say, here's Bitcoin. Here's what we want need to do in order to create a spot Bitcoin ETF. And it would be much less than this other stuff over here. And then he would then he should say, and here's all the rest of these uh, altcoins that are basically um, securities, but masquerading uh, as non-securities, you know. And so he should be going after these guys because they're clearly violating the SEC rules as far as uh, securities law goes. Bitcoin is not, and he understands that, but it's been very disappointing to me that he doesn't make that uh, abundantly clear. Um, and, and like I said, it bothers me that he's holding Bitcoin hostage to, to the, his other whims. So you I think mean, they it, continue to hold off on that for this I, year, or do you see that coming I, anytime soon? I don't know. I, I don't think it happens in the first half of this year. Uh, which again is disappointing, um, but uh, possibly the second half. It just depends on if they make any headway. And he has a lot of kind of uh, requirements for the exchanges in order to make them more sound and more compliant. Uh, will that happen? I don't know. Um, so it's hard. It, for me, it's very hard to see uh, this happening anytime soon. I thought there were some statutory limitations when they uh, apply for, I thought there had to be, there was a timeline. Yeah. So what he keeps doing is it comes up to the first deadline. He kicks the can down the road because you can do that apparently at the SEC and, and, uh, and it gives him a few more months of leeway. And then, and then he just flat out says yes or no denial or approval. And when the ones he's kicked the can down the road, he then has just flat out denied them. And then they have to go back through the process again to, um, to reapply. And so I just see him continuing to do this uh, indefinitely. I know that right now, I think it's, um, I believe it's Grayscale uh, is actually suing the SEC because of this uh, issue. So uh, bringing legal action and they have a good point. Their, their point is, look, you've already approved um, these um, futures-based Bitcoin ETFs. They're, they're literally built, uh, run on the same data that the spot ETFs are. So that doesn't even make sense. It's basically nonsensical to, to, mm -hmm. you know, to approve one and not approve another. Um, so maybe that, that court action will, will uh, hasten uh, approval of a spot ETF. I think, yeah, it's just a very frustrating process to watch. Yeah, but uh, he can use that as an excuse now to say, well, let the courts decide, and that just gives him more time. Yeah. I, I mean, do you think uh, there's any component of pride to this that he didn't want to come in and be seen as the Bitcoin lackey boy and just approve the ETF? Possibly. I, I don't know. I don't, you know, yeah. he seems like a good guy. He seems like a smart guy. I, I don't know what's going through yeah. his mind right now. So, yeah, it's always fun to speculate. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like I, like I said, if, if they put me in charge for a day or if I could whisper in his ear, I would say, I would say set apart Bitcoin from the rest of these mm -hmm. things and go down two tracks. And to me, that would be very easy and it would solve all of his problems because, because clearly Bitcoin is not a security. Clearly he believes these other cryptos are securities, two different paths. Yeah. And that's the, that's the way he should approach this, but he's not. Uh, so here's another question is around maybe around personal investment is like, where do stable coins fit into a portfolio when you're thinking about, uh, you know, all of this right now? 
Yeah, I don't think of stable coins as much as uh, stable coins to me are just a riskier version of the U.S. dollar. They're more, they have more utility, more functionality. Uh, obviously, on crypto exchanges, you can move them 24/7. Uh, you don't need approval from a bank to transfer large amounts of cash. Um, they have their own risks, obviously, and we don't really need to get into that. And you can earn high interest rates on those things on some of the exchanges if that's if that's your deal. Um, but I look at those as all they are is the dollar. Uh, in digital form, and so they still follow the same um, inflationary uh, tendencies as the U.S. dollar. You can earn interest rates on them, yes, but they're also depreciating uh, at a pretty rapid rate as well. Mm-hmm. So they have they have their usefulness, um, and and that's about it. Any dubious speculation about uh, government adoption into stable coins or CBDCs? Oh, I think governments definitely will move towards CBDCs. Um, I think that's inevitable. It's just the digital age, and that's the way things go. I I think that is uh, ominous for people who enjoy freedom. I think basically CBDCs are exactly the same terrible monetary policies. It's a great medium of exchange, but it, it depreciates so quickly. It's terrible for as a store of value. And then it adds the component of surveillance to it. And so uh, it basically means the government can manipulate um, the money in your bank account as they see fit. And they can, so they're going to pull strings and, and government being government, they're going to, you know, they're going to want you to do one thing and not want you to do something else. And if you disagree with that, you're going to dislike CBDCs. And if you love what government does, you're, you're going to love CBDCs. So I'm, I'm not a fan of them. Communist countries like China, they're going to be the first to adopt them, the first to utilize them. They're going to love them because it gives just even more control over the citizens. And I think it's actually not a good thing. Uh, Jeff, speak a little bit about, you know, there's a lot of talk about, you know, the CPI and, and whatnot. I was listening to Nick Carter and Preston Pish earlier this week, and you know, they, it seems like everybody's kind of talking about inflation. What do you think the real number of inflation is right now? Much higher. So, <laughs> so first of all, but to, but the caveat. So, I think we have peaked, though. That's that's one thing I want to make mm, clear. Okay, so, so okay. what I think we did is we we I, I like to liken it to a car analogy. We were pressing on the gas pedal. We got all the way up to 90 miles an hour on the highway. We're going really fast. Now we're going to let off on the accelerator and we're going to slow down to like 85 or 80. So we're still very high. We're still going fast. We still have high inflation, but it's going to decelerate. And so that does have uh, effects across different asset classes. But I do think the true rate of inflation definitely is higher than the CPI. I think most thinking people who are intellectually honest understand that. I mean, they've changed the way they, they measure CPI over the decades. Um, and, and they clearly do it to make it seem like inflation is lower than it is. Um, and so I think we are definitely right now experiencing double digit inflation, real inflation, uh, which means we're losing our purchasing power at double digits per year. And that's tragic. And most people don't understand that. And, and that's what kills the middle and lower classes because they don't have, uh, any assets to inflate to the value to rise. Uh, all they know is that cost of living is getting more and more expensive every year yeah. and their quality of life is going down. Yeah. Yeah. Matt and I are really trying to work on, um, helping improve that situation here in our local community. So hopefully more to follow on that. Um, what, uh, you know, I listening to Michael Saylor, Michael Saylor went from, and he still is, I mean, he, he's a true diehard Bitcoiner, but he seems to have, um, softened or 
presented a more nuanced approach to the interaction of the U.S. dollar and Bitcoin in the future. Um, it, he seems to be of the opinion, and I, I probably favor his opinion at this point, but he seems to be of the opinion that the U.S. dollar, as long as the U.S. is around, probably is not going to go away. The, the, there's no reason for the U.S. to adopt Bitcoin as legal tender. Um, what what are your thoughts on that? I don't know if you've heard his thinking, but what are your thoughts on that? Sure, sure, yeah. So I think first of all, I think he's a savvy political statesman. Um, he 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 has reasons for saying the things he says, and I sure. think it's I think it is wise, especially at these early stages of adoption for Bitcoin, to not paint it as an enemy of the U.S. dollar or you know, like the reason for the demise of the dollar. So it behooves people to have that point of view, at least until Bitcoin is more accepted uh, among politicians and the powers that be. I don't know that he, like, do I think he's correct, though? In 20 years, will the U.S. dollar still exist? I'm not positive it will. Uh, to to be to, to be honest, um, once once say you know layer two layer three of Bitcoin are and these applications are are grown and spread and are ubiquitous around the world. Do you need another medium of exchange if Bitcoin is already like a, a super cheap, fast, uh, instantaneous medium of exchange? Not really. I mean, mm-hmm. why why would you? And so mm-hmm. could could they still exist? Sure. Is there a reason for it to exist? Not necessarily. Um, so I, I'm not as optimistic as he is that the Bitcoin or that excuse me that the U.S. dollar will live on um, for a very long time. I do, however, think it's the last to fall, and I think this process will take longer than most people expect. So, like I said earlier, I think the weak currencies are going to go down this decade for sure, um, but there will still be some uh, bastions left standing. You know, maybe the Chinese yuan and and mm-hmm. the U.S. dollar. Maybe who, who knows? A, a couple more possibly. Um, but there, I, I look at them though, as almost being unnecessary at that point. And if something's unnecessary, why, why keep it? Yeah. But you could sure. say the same thing. Look at the, look at the U S government. Now they still make pennies. It actually costs more to make a penny than a penny is right. worth. Right. But they, they keep those around too. So why do yeah. they do that? I don't know. Government is terribly inefficient. So that's why I could see the currency is sticking around much longer than it needs to be around. Uh, I, I want to ask, ask about Ethereum and, you know, with Gensler's stance with the with Bitcoin and, and altcoins, what do you think the for, forget the technology of Ethereum, just um, the SEC stance with altcoins? What do you think the long term outlook is for Ethereum? That's a tough one. Um, if Ethereum, well, first of all, I think Ethereum is not Bitcoin in Gensler's eyes. Uh, I think he sees it as a security, although he's being careful not to um, go against what the prior chairman talked about, who basically gave uh, a pass to Ethereum as not being a security sort of. So it's, it's and, but then Gensler sort of retra- retraced that a little bit and it's sort of in the gray zone in the muddy waters. So I sort of look at it, here's Bitcoin. And actually I think there are a couple, so like Bitcoin Cash, Litecoin, the currencies that were competing with Bitcoin years ago, which are uh, clearly not, not mm-hmm. uh, competing any longer, but are still around. He lumps those in one little tiny pile. And then I think there's Ethereum in the gray zone. And then I think he has all of the other altcoin, 
systems that are actually securities uh, masquerading as non-securities. Um, and so I don't know what he's going to do with that. And can you actually do anything to Ethereum? Can you stop it? Some people think you can, you know, you can shut down the servers. You could go after Vitalik. It does have central control. Obviously if they moved a proof of stake, it makes it more susceptible to attack because it's more centrally controlled. Um, yeah, I mean, but but Ethereum may just collapse, and that gets into the technology of it. I mean, Ethereum may collapse on its own because of the technology, and and who knows when that's going to happen. But uh, and that's my bias. I mean, I'm not an expert in blockchain or Ethereum, but just based on what I what I know. Um, okay, well, that's interesting. And just to just to understand, the gray zone of Ethereum is not because Gensler put it there; it was because the previous chairman put it there. Yeah, I think it was Jay Clayton. Uh, okay. and, and he, he uh, kind of went back and re- read through his remarks and then, you know, they're always very careful to kind of like doctors, you don't joust with each other. You, you sort of let it go mm-hmm. and you kind of mm-hmm. tweak it a little bit. So he's sort of tweaking what was said and he's pulled back a little bit and brought it into this gray zone. Okay. All right. Well, let's, let's, uh, talk about your fund, uh, Velshire and kind of talk about, you know, what you saw last year with your fund, what you see, um, moving forward and what you're excited about with your fund. Yeah, so my fund experienced basically the same trajectory as Bitcoin's uh, path, which was up, down, up, down. That was kind of the year. It was like a seesaw, uh, which I hate to say. And so, and it, we were having a bang up year right until early November. And then I was like, if we can remember back earlier in the conversation, I was saying it was about a 50 50 chance that we were going to see a little bit of growth acceleration or deceleration. And I chose acceleration because of where we were in the cycle. I was hoping for that parabolic move. So I kind of went not all in, but very heavily in Bitcoin and related entities, miners, things like that, call options. If we, if Bitcoin was going to ramp, we were going to crush it. Bitcoin didn't ramp. So instead we got, we got hurt and we, we, we just sort of sagged into the end of the year and, and um, have been sagging since. What again, that means is, so we've gotten much more defensive in this first half because the data to me now is kind of undeniable. And then watching the Fed make their move yesterday, that that basically put the nail in the coffin. I think um, uh, it's, it's risk off for the most part for the most part for the next couple of months, and then definitely risk off heading into March, April, May kind of time period. So I will be very defensive. It's disappointing, but it is what it is. And that's what I try to talk to my investors about is that I can have my hopes and what I think should happen, but if the data changes, I change and we have to change. And so, so I went from being very aggressive, super optimistic to now I'm very measured and I'm actually getting uh, pretty defensive now. Um, and that will actually increase uh, in the next couple of months. So that's how I look with the fund. I, like I said earlier too, I think the second half of 2022, I think by that point, everyone will have given up on Bitcoin. They're going to say Peter Schiff was right. Bitcoin's going to zero. It's a failed experiment. Truly, it was a tulip bulb market. All those dumb things. And the, that the, will the, be the time. Yeah, the capitulation. Yeah. Capitulation. And that will be the time to go all in. And it's just going to go bananas, I think, after that at that point. And it will have a lot of making up to do. So um, my low end of the range that I look at, I, I think of Bitcoin as in this uh, basically being this channel of exponential growth. And the place, the price fluctuates within the channel, but it stays within this channel over the long run and it does this. So there's lots of volatility, but if you just can focus on this part of it, it's a great, fantastic ride of exponential growth. And so if it, if by the time we get to the second half of 2022 and it's down here on the channel, it has to go all the way up to here to make up for that. And that could be in the several hundreds of thousands of dollars. So 
So you're 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 describing basically the stock to flow. I mean, you, do you still? Well, okay. You, I saw the the question mark on your face. Um, yeah, speak to that. So I, I I originally was a fan of stock to flow, but it never sat right with me. The more I th- the more I thought about it, the less it sat well with me because I don't think it's a supply side issue. I think it's a demand and adoption issue for Bitcoin. Supply is permanently fixed at twenty one thousand. It will never change twenty one million. Excuse me. It will never change, other than it will deflate because people have we've lost some Bitcoin. So it's actually less than twenty one million Bitcoin will ever be in existence. So to me, the the much more important factor is adoption of the Bitcoin network and the expansion of the Bitcoin network. I think it becomes ubiquitous. And I think as there's two levels of adoption, there's one when people accept it and go from no Bitcoin to maybe 1% of their net worth in Bitcoin. And then there's the second phase of adoption where you go from 1% to, to you make it your own personal Bitcoin standard and you go to 50, 75, 100% of your net worth in Bitcoin. That happens. I know a lot of people who have done that already, but those are very, very early adopters. I think we'll get to that point for individuals and then companies and then countries are going to go to that level where they adopt this Bitcoin standard. The whole concept is called hyper-Bitcoinization. I think we're seeing the early phases of that already. Um, and so that's how I look at it is, is this adoption and, and when you think of Metcalf's law, right, that the value of the network is equal to the square of the number of users. Mm-hmm. So as the number of users continues to increase at a very rapid clip, which it is right now, the value of the network is the square of that. So the exponential of that, basically, that's where we get this exponential tube running up. Uh, I don't know if I'm doing that right direction for you, upwards and to the right. Um, and, and and so so Bitcoin within that I think it continues in that channel for years and years and years uh, you know decades possibly um, and so whenever it gets lower I think of it just as simply it's the ultimate value investment the cheaper it gets the better the buy it is because it has to regain that lost ground in the long run so the way I do it in my fund is the cheaper it gets if it hits certain levels I just buy another tranche of it and and increase my position the cheaper it gets so even sure. though I may lose money in the short term, we will definitely make up for it sure, in the long run. Sure. Very good. Very good. Well, any any further thoughts looking forward for Velshire or what you're excited about for the future? And maybe just personally, uh, you know, now that you're, I guess, uh, doctoring is in the rearview mirror. Right, right. Yeah. So quality of life is is huge. Personally, I'm loving just being around. I, I like get to make breakfast for my boys before they go off to school. And um, we, we try to get up to see my daughter in college uh, more. And, so, you know, just getting out, seeing friends, seeing the sunshine, going out on walks. I never did mm-hmm. any of that stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, I've been doing two careers since 2014. Yeah. Uh, and it's been very busy. And so lifestyle improvements are, are um, fantastic. I'm, v- I'm just very excited for the next year for just quality of life perspective. Um, for Valeshire, um, like I said, what I hope to do is um, gain traction among other investors or people who want to utilize my services because they see one, I'm intellectually honest. So I, I actually say, yes, I think tougher times are ahead. But two, I have a plan for it. How can you profit still or lose less when the market goes down versus just the traditional 60 40, you know, Vanguard index funds kind of approach, which like you just tank? Um, and so, and so I hope to be more like that. Like even in Valeshire, we've transitioned, we, we had been in these high growth stocks for years and years the Teslas, Shopify's, Mercado Libre, 
um, things like that. And just uh, at the end of December, we transitioned to I'm moving over into quality stocks or capital efficient stocks, companies that can kind of rough, you know, they can they can brave the recessionary conditions and still churn out profits. They can they have products that people love, uh, and and so we've we've sort of shimmied into those things. And I think they should do much better, relatively speaking, uh, in in tough times. Jeff, I don't think I've asked this question before, but what your uh, your mix of uh, clients is it individuals, home offices, businesses, small business? I mean, what what's the mix? Yeah, mostly just uh, individual clients. So I have everywhere from a lot of high net worth individuals to just regular people. It, it started out as just my family and friends, mostly people that I worked with, honestly, at the hospitals. So the okay. techs I worked with, nurses, doctors, administrators, and then it's it's expanded since then. But yeah, I I still haven't dipped into the family office level, although I've had a few requests because they have um, they have conditions that you need to meet and expectations that that I don't want them to change how I do things. I'm kind of a maverick, as you can probably tell, and I'll go where I think I should go. And if I have somebody over me with a huge slug of money that's saying, do this, and it's not where I want to go, then I'm, you know, at odds. Okay. 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 That's, that's good. Excellent. Jeff, uh, this has been great. I appreciate your time and thanks for coming back and talking with us. And I think, um, you know, maybe once a quarter, I might be pinging you to come back on and kind of tell us what, and that, that'll hold you accountable too. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. Yeah, you got that right. And Matt, do you want to, any further thoughts or questions for Jeff? No, I just appreciate all your insight and, uh, man, just, uh, yeah, just love learning and uh, hearing new things from you. So I appreciate all of that. Yeah, well, thanks, guys. It's always fun talking to you, so anytime. Yeah, hopefully next time I won't have to eat crow like I did this time. Here, I expected this big run up into the year end, and we got smoke. No, I mean, yeah, when when you can enjoy uh, humble pie, uh, that's good for the soul. So uh, blessings, blessings to you, brother. I appreciate it. Thanks, Patrick, and thanks, Matt. Appreciate thanks, you guys. Thank you for listening to the Mission Bitcoin Podcast. To access the tools discussed today, be sure to use the links found in the show notes. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decisions, consult a professional.